welcome everybody to the first episode of the Ludinus Podcast. I am Aaron Thayer. Uh, joining me is Nick Cummings. Nick, why don't you tell the people who you are? Uh, I am Nick. I am the guy being introduced here, and uh, I am one of the co-founders of The Ludinist, and um, a longtime kind of quasi-professional, mostly amateur, definitely unpaid uh, games writer, blogger, podcaster. And I would second that. Uh, I am also a unpaid quasi-professional writer, creator. Some of you may recognize us by name or voice from our work on Silicon Sasquatch, uh, and some of you who may be aware of that could be wondering, well, what are you two doing on a different podcast? That seems like uh, more work. Why are you trying to do more work? And it's a valid question. Getting, yeah, and we're still not getting paid for it. So, <laughs> uh, We are trying out a new direction for uh, Nick and I definitely agree on a lot of things and we have some similar opinions, but we also differ and we think we can have, uh, actually better conversations and trying a new direction on a new brand. Um, you know, there are details there that, uh, don't necessarily matter, but we still have put a lot of six years of work into Silicon Sasquatch. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> more, and... <laughs> more work than I think I'm, I'm comfortable admitting, yeah. uh, but yeah, uh, I think that we're both kind of coming at this because we have a, a, a couple of unique opportunities. One is that we both live in the same city again for the first time in years since like we first started Silicon Sasquatch. Mm-hmm. And uh, we now have these sweet microphones from all this podcasting we've done for Silicon Sasquatch and uh, realized that we could probably fo- focus in on trying to create a, a whole new kind of show or product that's a little bit more... Um, a little more put together, a little bit more structured, and maybe um, with a focus on going deeper into specific topics. And just kind of seeing where that can take us. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. No, you, Nick hit it right on the head. Uh, that's our focus. That's our interest. And we're going to be talking about things that are fascinating, uh, interesting to us that aren't just, I, I guess you would say, the traditional games focus. There are a lot of great gaming podcasts out there. We all know that. Any of you who'd be interested in listening to us know that. But we are going to do everything we can to talk about interesting things and make them interesting for you. Um, to have a passion for the conversation about games, be it the industry, be it AAA, indie development, even games development, which is something Nick has been uh, diving headfirst into for a while now. And oh, I dabble. He, he, you dabble. I dabble. You're, hey, you're a great game developer. Skeel? Come on. If yeah. You, if nobody has checked out Skeel, this is a shameless plug. It's, well, why don't we let the creator briefly explain your game development? Uh, it is a bad by design uh, single joke game that is pretty much a direct homage to uh, a much better single joke stupid game called uh, Room of 1000 Snakes uh, by this uh, game developer Ben Esposito uh, which you should go play instead uh, <laughs> Skill, I'm actually uh, taking a little time to revisit what I want to do with it, it's a, a kind of temporarily out of commission but uh, it's a portmanteau of ski like the act of skiing down a mountain and uh, Seal, the uh, kind of ubiquitous 1990s R&B sensation known for his uh, song Kiss from a Rose, which was featured on Batman Forever. Great uh, song. Definitely the f- fifth best Batman movie. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't like Returns <laughs> all that much. Point of fifth mentioning best. Fifth best. Yes, fifth best. That's and, good. And point of putting Nick on the spot is that we have a wide range of experience and perspective when it comes to games, so... Uh, our hope, and we'll make mistakes, we'll we'll have fun, but we'll, we'll also put a lot of work into this to make it a great podcast, and this is where we start. So Yeah, it starts by breaking down barriers, like the fact that Aaron and I are actually <laughs> sitting across from each other in this, like, I guess this is your garage. Yeah, it's um, this, this house that we've, um, my girlfriend and roommate and I have been in for a long time, it's a very small house, and the garage would not fit probably even a Honda Civic. So over the years, it's been a band room. Uh, there's still a drum set in here. There's fake wood on the walls with exposed um, insulation. We're going to get a 70s funk band to be our house band is what Aaron's trying to get at. And by the look of this this room, it should be called Asbestos, our funk band, because I don't really know about the building codes that it's been... Yeah, there's a good chance we're going to die bringing you guys this podcast. So, but that's the point. That is the passion that we are putting into this project. Yeah, it's this die. pursuit of like something to die for. Yes. So we no. are here in person <laughs> in Portland, Oregon. Um, that's our our goal. Is every week we'll be doing a 
a podcast. Uh, by the time this goes live, we're hoping we'll have a few in the bank and we'll have some interesting discussions and figure out how we promote those, present those. Uh, we want to have a bit more perspective on an audience, develop that audience, get you, the listeners, involved, and at least hear from you and tailor that maybe a little bit. We'll still talk about what we want to, yeah. but we actually want to pursue and engage an audience, perhaps more than we did on our previous projects. Yeah, I, I think that's a big part of it for me, is that I know there are a lot of people out there who care about games on some level, but like even if they are what they might describe as a casual fan, uh, chances are they feel pretty passionately about one or two things at least, or certain games or certain memories or certain aspects of playing games with people and introducing games to people that I think we really want to try and tap into. Um, audience building is a tricky thing and that it can be hard to grab people and it can be very hard to cultivate an audience that is appropriate to the work you're doing. So uh, yep. it's definitely going to, be a, a, going to be a big part of our focus for this thing going forward. And that's also going to kind of affect, I think, um, or naturally dovetail with the uh, different types of content we try and produce, the different subjects we cover, and um, kind of where we take this project from here. Uh, yeah. But for now, we're focused on building a really good podcast, um, producing it really well, uh, feeling good about the research and work and uh, conversations we put into it, and uh, we hope you guys like it, and we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. I second that. And before we get started with our first podcast, I was hoping you, Nick, could explain to the people who've gotten this far, who've clicked on the link, who've open this up on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever they're listening to it and are going, what the hell is a Ludinist or what would be the Ludinist in a singular sense? What is the name in, in what, what do we consider? The yeah. Name? It sounds like a medieval sex offender. Yeah. It uh, sounds lewd. It does. Yeah. Um, it's not, which I've struggled with cause it's like, well, wait, maybe subliminally, this is actually a concern of mine. Uh, but no, uh, the, the name comes from uh, the, I guess it's a Latin root Ludo. Mm-hmm. which means game. Uh, study, ludology. Yeah, ludology is the study of like gameplay, or play, I guess, in general, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we kind of chose this name, A, because the domains were conveniently <laughs> open. But <laughs> For those of you who might want to start his or her own podcast, that's going to be probably the biggest deciding factor. But go Or on. naming a child, yes. let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> so we took that because we, you know, it reflected a real desire in us that we've always had with all our podcasts, and frankly, with every project we worked on together to really dive into like below the surface of things that we observe in the games we play and the news we read and the stories that we experience mm-hmm. and to really kind of understand what makes things tick and really kind of study, um, you know, kind of bring an amateur science to it, a pseudoscience like, um, Oh, what's the word for studying cryptozoology, which is a big part Dianetics. of our last project pseudoscience yeah but. <laughs> we're actually trying to um this is all going to lead to like a battlefield earth style yeah. movie that we create there will be a break where we do a thetan check mm-hmm. um but yes cryptozoology mm-hmm. we were studying that on our previous project right yeah mm-hmm. so uh yeah this i think this new name reflects uh our desire to not necessarily to get more serious or to like yeah we're not going to be academic about a lot of this in a way right yeah i, I don't think either one of us wants to come off as pedantic yeah. uh i certainly do it without trying. I need to stop that. So this podcast <laughs> is actually kind of my part of my uh, my therapy. Uh, yeah, we'll be using this as a way to um, just really try to offer some different analysis and some you know some of the hard thinking or at least semi difficult thinking that goes into like really trying to extrapolate trends and just yeah. make sense of what the hell is going on with games. Because like I don't know if you've been paying attention lately, Aaron, but like. Games make less and less sense every year, and yeah. in, a, in a good yeah. way. There's diversification of audiences, of game genres, of platforms, of cultures and subcultures, and people with big ideas and people with terrible ideas. And like, I don't know. There's a there's this guy named PewDiePie who makes all the money now, and like, he's a guy on YouTube. So like, <laughs> five years ago, if you told me that, I would have just said like, wait, no, he's that's you're talking about Jeff Gersman. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, things are different, and we're just gonna try and do play our little part to help make sense of things. Yep. Cool. Well, I think I think you said it all, my friend. Great. Um, so to you raised a good point, and that can help segue into what we wanted to discuss for this this inaugural episode. Uh, essentially, AAA, what it is, where it is right now, uh, and where it's going, and also perhaps as we talk about that we'll we'll diverge a little bit into yeah. 
the different gaming experiences out there. Um, Before we go too far with that, uh, would you mind defining AAA for our audiences? Yes. So AAA, one of those industry jargon terms. AAA gaming is a catch-all. I actually don't know as far as where it started, if it just meant that a single A, sort of like, let's say, a baseball division. Well, when two A's meet and they love each other very much, they make a third A, and uh, that is Gears of War. It's also an insurance company, auto insurance and Mm -hmm. uh, towing. AAA Gaming is specific to top-tier, super big-budget marketing blitz giant publisher type of games your batmans your call of duties your battlefields your zeldas um really high funded large development team major publisher or developer type of games so, exactly the games that need right. not only want but need to sell millions of copies yes they have to it's an imperative uh which we'll get into why i i that need to sell I'll be devil's advocate a little bit, but we'll we'll get there. Um, I see how this works. <laughs> so that's a AAA game. To answer your question, Nick, so that's where we're at, and that is what is essentially we're seeing now driving the industry. But as you mentioned just a little bit ago, what about that diversification in games? What about those new voices, new styles of play? Where yeah. are we at in relation to AAA? Uh, how do you feel as a as someone who plays games, follows the industry about AAA and is it even relevant for you anymore? I mean, I, 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 you know, we know each other. We know that we both like are just fascinated by games as a concept and as like an experiential thing and cool experiences and interesting mechanics and fun executions and original ideas can come from anywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think what has been hardest for me to grapple with is I am someone who grew up with traditional media to read about games and a very small selection of platforms. Yeah. I'm talking like, Things made on dead trees that were actually mailed to you and you would read them <laughs> and like they had articles and they didn't have lists and it was just this mind blowing concept. There was no understand. Justin Bieber either. It was a yeah. very different time. And uh, back then, and I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm giving some sort of glory days speech because it really wasn't a better time for yeah, games. Yeah, we're, we're still too young in our late 20s to say back in the day, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the, the the channels were limited. Everything was more or less AAA on some level, especially in the console space, because right. uh, early entrants like Nintendo had so much control over what made it to market, and that kind of persisted uh, with even Sega's Genesis and then, like, the 32-bit era, which followed after. And ever since then, really up until the last generation, there was still that kind of tight control over things. And it wasn't really until the Xbox 360 and that generation, that seventh generation of consoles... That we started to see um, new pathways open up, mostly because of broadband internet too. Uh-huh. Uh, for that changed a lot. Yeah, it it made it so that smaller developers could really have a seat at the table, um, and really um, in the eyes of mass consumers, uh, in a way they couldn't before. That it had to be major com- uh, so, companies. So are you saying that? I think that's actually an interesting way of looking at it. Um, the divergence of broadband giving open access almost a democratization of game development to um, to allow this dichotomy of what's triple a and what's not are you saying that before there was the concept of an indie game that it was just games like all games were kind of triple a games in a way i mean sure there were there were smaller games that didn't sell well there were fewer budgets but i i guess i feel and that's what i'm wondering about what you said it does feel like games were just games when we were growing up in the early 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. You just went to a Fred Meyer, a Best Buy, a CompUSA, a whatever store you went to, a brick and mortar, and there was just games. You didn't think of like, oh, that's a indie developer, that's a small publisher. It was just, here's X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, here's Grim Fandango, and then there's a Resident Evil. It was just there. So is that kind of what you're saying in a way, or...? Yeah, well, partially. I mean, there there have always been indie games. There have been indie sure. games since, like, the origin of games. Um, the only thing is, we didn't really have a name for it back then, and yeah. also it was a lot harder for people to discover those things back when they were only hosted on uh, BBSs, like Bolton board systems you had to dial your modem into and then download the file from very slowly. Even, like, a MUD would be kind of an indie game in a way? A well, text game? depends on who made it. Sure. I mean, like, at the time there really was no definition for it, but I don't think people were making a whole lot of money from MUD subscriptions. I could be wrong. By today's standards, almost certainly not, though. Okay. Uh, but I mean, like, even back in the, the late 90s, there were LAN games we would play um, that were they were freeware. They were distributed by people who we'd never heard of. They weren't real companies. They were just people. 
like a great example is this game called Sold Out, which if you've been to a LAN party, uh, maybe in the last like five or ten years ago, you may have played it, where it's like this 2D uh, multiplayer deathmatch game for two teams uh, with these little guys with guns, and it was just uh, keyboard and mouse, but like on a 2D jumping platforming plane, and it's like mm-hmm. just this wild multiplayer battle, kind of like real time worms in a sense. Oh, okay. It was really cool, and like that's a good example of a game that like would be considered indie now, but Back then, it was just a freeware, cool multiplayer game. So It didn't have any sort of label attached to it, in a way. It was just a game. Yeah, it was just a thing floating out there. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a lot of the games I really got into when I was a younger kid, too. Like, when we first got AOL dial-up internet, were just, like, hypercard games and little, like, shockwave games that people made. And, like, are those indie? Are they just, like, fan-made? Are they freeware? I think that that's, like, still kind of a good question. But now, there's a kind of established industry that's almost like a... a companion to triple a as we see it but triple a still refers to um those established game uh publishers really that work with developers to push a game to a mass market even if a game is successful that's called an indie game even if it's something like uh news as we're recording this i just saw today was the uh app game crossy road yep made what was it 10 million dollars it's making a lot of money and that's they're an independent developer. Yeah. That was a single release on iOS, right? It's, it's not Android, Android 2, I think. Okay. So it's a mobile game. Um, you can consider that an indie game, and that's a lot of money, but that's still not Call of Duty money, right? It's so, also not Clash of Clans money. Sure. That, which is not AAA, <laughs> but is still mass market and available on every phone. Which is a whole new segment of the market that's free-to-play mm-hmm. and microtransaction enabled. So, yeah. Okay, so... Do you think we kind of established what a AAA game is and then what is not a AAA game? Yeah, or... I hope so. Uh, if anyone listening is confused or we didn't do a good job, just drop us a line and we'll... Uh... When this goes up, we'll have a proper contact. We'll apologize. And... Yes, we'll fall. apologize profusely, too. Um, okay, so that's, that is definitely AAA in a nutshell. Yeah. And whatever is not AAA, we are now, today, having the terms to describe it by, say, it's an indie game or what could have been in the past called a freeware or shareware game. Exactly. Um, okay. So, in, say, your opinion, um, what is AAA now? Do Is it, is it, it's necessary from the industry, because that's how the industry is making billions of dollars, right? They're not yeah. making the billions, and this is anecdotal, but it's also true, I'm pretty sure, if we actually pulled up the numbers, but regardless of the success of an individual developer or individual individual studio, the billions that the industry makes are coming from the blockbusters, the AAA games. Yes, the ones that sell well anyway. Right now, at least. Maybe this changes in 10 years, but or five. Uh, Are the AAA games places of innovation, places uh, or software that allows for flexibility, would you say? What do you think? I mean, historically, we've seen a lot of innovation in AAA games. Like, if you point to some of the most kind of like generally regarded as important games of the last 15 year, 20 years, you'd probably point to things like Zelda Ocarina of Time, mm-hmm. which came out. Z-targeting. The... Yeah, Z-targeting, the whole like moving around objects in a 3D space without two joysticks. That Huge. was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, Resident Evil 4, mm-hmm. um, with all the crazy stuff it did to turn a horror game into a like kind of astoundingly good uh, action-adventure game. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there there are lots of examples I could probably dig up beyond the watershed that. moments of AAA games that have like pushed the uh, Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, how it changes the whole industry. Every GTA really, especially like three in San Andreas. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like historically, you know, those are the things I think people got excited about in AAA was when the, right. those moments of breakthrough. And uh, I think what we've seen since the you know the increased presence and prevalence of this indie genre, this like sub sixty dollar genre mm-hmm. of games, this whole new segment is that um people with good ideas the money and the dedication can make these new ideas that wouldn't get the that are too risky for big budgets to come to light they can get those into the market and they can release games like braid with its yeah. time manipulation and also just like brilliant use of narrative in interactive space uh or fez or um some of the big kind of new generation of what we would call an indie some of the 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 trailblazers of the indie movement and yeah especially braid yeah absolutely um and yeah that's that's changed things i don't think that means though that AAA can't be a source of innovation i just think that it draws into sharp relief the fact that um because there is so much money and so many jobs and so much publicity writing on uh the success or failure of a AAA game yeah. in these days 
it's you know it's made these big studios a lot more risk averse in some ways yeah the development cost i can imagine per game uh especially if your game is not to bring it up again a call of duty that's guaranteed to at least be a pretty surefire sales success um yeah i i think what you were talking about before and also mentioning that AAA games cost sixty dollars the average 59.99 price that's mm-hmm. a good point is anything not AAA doesn't mean it uh it isn't sixty dollars or thirty or twenty but yes traditionally you're going to see on the store shelves physical copies or digital it's sixty dollars oh that's a big release that's a that's a major game that's yep. pretty easy to tell that's almost like it's calling card that you're supposed to take it very seriously yeah. or look at it as like this is, you know, this game is vying essentially for the mass market's money. And mm-hmm. most people who play games don't spend many hundreds of dollars on games a year, most likely. They, no. you know, we talk about this, this, like, this consumer who buys Madden and Call of Duty every year. And that's a pretty big contingent. I mean, obviously those people are branching out more by larger and larger numbers. Just yeah. um, usually it happens like when a Madden game kind of sucks that year <laughs> or just <laughs> like... try something else. Yeah, or just this growing like kind of... I guess success of the marketing teams of mm-hmm. roping in these new consumers, but like that's uh, those consumers are also now playing games like Skyrim or Destiny or right. yeah, which are actually good examples to bring up. In a way, those have been games that merge what could be considered the historical innovations of AAA games. Um, mm-hmm. When you talk about something like a Skyrim, that's yeah, the previous games in the Elder Scrolls series, for anybody who would be nitpicky about it, did have open world elements, did have RPG elements, uh, branching dialogues in a way, kind of, but action, just all the stuff that's indicative of the series, that's there, sure. Destiny being a, uh, a first-person shooter, MMO, RPG hybrid, but those are games that are still new, or somewhat new, mm-hmm. um, that combine a lot of elements that were innovated by say a Final Fantasy, or say a uh, Wolfenstein, something that was traditional game development 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. So I guess where I'm going, because to bring it back, what you were talking about is um, going back in the historical context you were talking about with innovations and some of the ideas I was thinking of, because I still, I guess I see as AAA was just at one point for me as a consumer, as a kid, they were just games. Games were games. Yep. If there was a CD that I got in a magazine or from a friend that had some free games or shareware games, they were just more games, but I could tell the quality was different. These weren't yeah. real games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Quotes. You remember like those discs of 250 DOS games you can get at like Fred Meyer? <laughs> yeah. Wow. There's so many games on here and none of them are really that great. Yeah. Like maybe they had Commander Keen, but it was like this shareware version. Yeah. There and... was one good anchor yeah. On there, or Master Blaster or something. Yeah. Or that really bad Street Fighter 2 port to DOS. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or Load Runner. I can go on about those yes. games forever. Let's not do that. But yeah, you're right. Like, it was basically like a, a, a binary choice in most cases. Like, yeah. do you are you a Genesis kid or are you a Super Nintendo kid? Right. Console gaming helped, I think, establish for our generation what gaming was capable of. There's always been mm-hmm. PC games that push the limits. Anybody who's a PC gamer can list multiple examples of games that came out during the console eras that were doing great things, if not better. But point of that being is I see now with AAA games, and I'm curious about, again, what you're seeing from what you've been playing recently that would be considered AAA in the last few years Mm -hmm. or very recently, is AAA games are absolutely safe bets. As you said, it's it's publishers and developers that are risk averse to trying new things but it is still possible for them to innovate and they do incremental innovations i would say on, on yeah. the whole yeah uh, say something like the nemesis system in shadow of mordor it's not going to necessarily change the entire industry the same way an open world that grand theft auto introduced in three grand theft auto three changed everything and we're still seeing open world games now because of that yep but it was an innovation to AI and and giving an open world a reason to do some of the things you did, the reason to kill orcs that you had some sort of narrative attached to them. I mean, that's an innovation that I bet we'll see adapted going forward in some small way or some bits in certain games, I think, anyway. Okay. Um, so that's what I'm trying to say is there are still chances for AAA. It's not just all the same crap, but at the same time, there is a lot of AAA that's doing the same thing. Yeah. These games are doing the same thing of padding 
their games with side quests, large maps, open worlds, increasing artificially the uh, gameplay time to where you could finish the story of a main game like Assassin's Creed Unity in yeah. maybe 5 to 10 hours in a few, like, 12 main missions. But if you did all the collectibles and the side missions that really have no bearing on, on your character, Arno, uh, that could be another 40, 50, 60 hours. Yeah. But what are you getting out of it in the end? So that's where I feel we're yeah. at with AAA. And again, curious on your thoughts, is it's they're they're afraid to really push the limit where it was possible 20, 30 years ago uh, because games were just a whole new wild world. We're, we're seeing games do and ape a lot of the same characteristics of each other, be it a shooter, an RPG, or whatever, uh, because they know it will sell with mm-hmm. those people that you said that buy a Madden or Call of Duty every year. And that's where we're at. If that changes in the future because of the threat of indie games, what they might call the threat of indie games, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But that's where I feel fatigue with yeah. AAA. I, I think you touched on some good points, and I think that there, there are a couple ways of looking at uh, AAA, because um, I'll give you an example. So last year, a lot of publications and even like game critics and game developers gave a lot of praise and often Game of the Year awards to Dragon Age Inquisition. Mm-hmm. Uh, third Dragon Age game. It's uh, it's Bioware's uh, fantasy RPG series that they're currently developing. Um, Bioware, who also makes Mass Effect, did Baldur's Gate, all those games. Longtime RPG maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and Aaron and I talked about this a lot in the, over the last few months, but um, just especially recently, um, just for context, like this is a game that we both kind of had mixed feelings on, but I know that um, consistently um, we kind of interpreted the game's... Uh, characteristics in different ways like i've i was the one who was consistently frustrated by the fact that it felt so padded out like they'd added so much supplemental content and kind of in almost intentionally misdirected the player away from the critical path to make sure they saw all of it but Mm -hmm. didn't really justify that detour with um the same level of like narrative significance or unique experiences that you would get from those critical path main storyline missions um and i think it's um more than anything, it comes down to, like, how does this sort of inevitability of sameness affect our perceptions of these games? Um, so, like, a good p- counterpoint is I also picked up Far Cry 4, which came out last November, uh, just about a week ago. And that's a game that is, for all intents and purposes, very close to uh, the previous game, Far Cry 3, in terms of its design. The systems are very similar. Yeah, even the way the story is told, the kinds of characters you encounter, yeah. the upgrade path, the main story path, it's all all very similar. But for some reason, it's fun for me to play Far Cry 4. And maybe it's because I it feels a little more fresh to me as a model of game than Dragon Age, which feels very much steeped in like uh, MMORPG traditions as well as traditional Western RPG single-player traditions. Uh, or maybe I just, you know, I'm fickle, and I just, for some reason, didn't want to play a slower, kind of methodical RPG, but I was totally down to go skin some animals <laughs> and just play asshole cultural tourist in another far-flung region of the world right. with guns and explosives. Well, here's, here's a question, then, because that, uh, I had the same, similar experiences between Dragon Age and Far Cry 4. Uh, Far Cry 4, I, I beat. Dragon Age, I also beat, so we're coming from a similar... Uh, of what we've played similar place but is is it necessary to define triple a games by the risks that they take meaning do we consider a blockbuster game to be successful perhaps worthy of a of an award whoever gives the award if it drastically does something different or maybe not drastic but it does something different that we're kind of just as you've said by uh, by proxy of the fact that they all aren't really doing anything different. If one comes out of the gate, say like Shadow of Mordor, which did win a few Game of the Year awards from different publications, yep. primarily because of the Nemesis system and it was so different, mm-hmm. is that enough to just make these games better? And the reason I ask is, do you think Dragon Age and Far Cry took risks? Is maybe Far Cry more interesting to you because it took different risks? Is it just that the gameplay is they're they're different? Yes, but if any of those games took any risks that were, uh, say, completely different departures from their predecessors, would you like the games more? Or does that not really factor into it? It's it's such a crapshoot. I mean, I think that's 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 the trap I keep wandering into when I talk about this subject. Is like 
I don't think I really have an absolute rule for what I think is right or wrong for AAA to do, because no matter how you look at anything, uh, it's going to come down to, there's always going to be good and bad elements, and especially, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. Things that looked super significant or, like, landmark at the time, maybe not so much in the past. Like, good examples, Bioshock came out eight years ago almost now, 2007. Uh, it was a much vaunted, you know, heavily critically acclaimed um, first-person shooter with horror elements set in a dystopian uh, contained underwater city. I'm sure many of you are at least familiar with Bioshock. You can get it on iOS now. Yeah, you can play it on iOS, which is mind-blowing because I bought a 364, which was, yeah, I I bought a lot of dumb things for reasons. But um, that game at the time was for many people, including me, mind-blowing because of the way it played with the player's expectations of what a narrative can do thematically in a linear game. A first-person shooter, especially. First, especially first-person shooters, because, like, this is not too long after, um, I guess, I guess it's about 10 years after Quake 2, but, like, yeah. you know, I'm trying to think of a contemporary, like, first-person shooter and, like, a really landmark, landmark standout one. It, it was not too long after the first few Call of Duties. Return to Castle Wolfenstein was yeah. pretty big for 2003. Yeah, that was. And I think Call of Duty might have been the same year. Yeah, 2003. Uh, yeah, so... This is a few years after that. This is built off of, like, you know, kind of... And it's, it's it's like, okay, you're used to getting instructions, following them, executing them, and shooting people along the way. What if we flip that around? And, like, yeah. at the time, it was amazing, but it really, in hindsight, is, you know, it's a narrative device. It's a good device. It was underutilized. It was executed in a good way. But once you play it... Exactly. Yeah. It's done, and you're, what you're left with is kind of a middling shooter in terms of the mechanics at play and the uh, kind of the game's inability to grow with the player as you get further in and remain engaging and deliver meaningful iterations on the, you know those core loops, those design loops that are built into the game. Um, it's a big reason why Doom, I think, is still so playable uh, is uh, because it, you know it's a much simpler game, but uh, it, it has a great highly polished feel that evolves very smartly over the progression of its levels whereas Bioshock really was uh, a success on, the, on the, the heels of its narrative. It's, it's atmosphere, it's narrative. That was, I, I think that's a good point. Um, it subverted expectations, as you put it, just because it did things that, literally, you thought you were doing one thing as the lackey of what you thought was Andrew Ryan, and then all the, the I mean, you can spoil it from here on out. Basically, when you kill Andrew Ryan, yeah, because if you haven't played the game now in the last eight years, then that's your fault. But Yeah, you get to what you think is the finale. Yeah. And then you all control is wrested away from you and he forces you to kill him because in in the narrative context he's proving that you're mind controlled and you're basically just doing whatever people to tell you tell you to do. But there's also this not so subtle pseudo narrative, like kind of parallel narrative of like the game's creator saying, Hey, look at how you play games. You're just a mindless zombie following all the yeah. orders you're given, and now look at this horror that we've forced you to commit. And this is actually so think about that. Just a year after uh, Bioshock would come out, Braid gets released, mm-hmm. and then we have this this tidal wave of independent games with developers pushing the limits of what gamers think are uh, expected, what what's expected in playing a game, what's expected from you, the player. So in Bioshock, it was, in a way, revolutionary at the time to just have a narrative, but if you strip away, as you're saying, the middling mechanics that are just, it's an average shooter, really... It's yeah. not it's not changing how shooting games work. You could do that narrative in just a tablet touch game, mm-hmm. essentially, to have that experience of you're taking directions over the course of a narrative, you think that you're in control of this thing, but then you find out that Atlas essentially is controlling you via a key phrase of uh, would you kindly and all like yeah. the the play on the the well written script could be done now without AAA. Yeah, is what I'm trying to say, and yep. that I think is where we're kind of getting around the maybe the main point we're trying to make is yeah. is AAA once was the bastion of uh, design, mechanics, story, plots, be it uh, spoil not spoilers, but um, big revelatory uh, twists, something like the Knights of the Old Republic, where you find out that you are Revan, the Dark Lord that you've been chasing. Yeah, I know, Nick. I actually never got that far <laughs> you, we've talked about this okay well i guess i, I, I think so i think I we're never gonna play it. you don't it's okay it's on ios now it's fine you can play it there 
So there, that, but that's the thing is, while that game, separate from um, the story, the mechanics of a Bioware RPG were fun in that, it was interesting, it still wasn't really doing much, it was just a good Star Wars game, playing in a, a better than expected Star Wars game, I should say, <laughs> using RPG mechanics that were pretty solid at the time from a pretty great developer, Yeah. so that's why it was so good, and the fact that, oh my god, there is this this plot that you didn't see coming bam, you actually are the Dark Lord that you've been chasing the whole game. Yeah. I think I think you're getting at a good point here, yeah. which is that up until a certain point in time, all those kind of, like, um, kind of, what would you call it? Like a magician, like, showing you behind, like, the mirror or something. Like, kind of the, the, the prestige, let's say. <laughs> I still haven't seen that movie. Okay, that's not but actually I, what the I prestige understand. is. Okay. But uh, that the whole, like, you the know, of Oz the thing. flourish that, that, that kind of shows you, like, you know, I'm not going to tell you exactly how I did it, but okay. you're going to know it happened, and you're going to be, like, dumbfounded by it. I think and that endears that, you to it. It used to. Exactly. And I think that's why people love those games so much and look so fondly back on, like, Final Fantasy VII, which, you know, had this major moment of, oh, yeah, we're going to totally kill one of the main characters yeah. in the first act of the game. You're not going to see it coming. It's going to be devastating. And then you're going to have to fight, a, like, a terrible boss after that just to make matters worse. Yeah, you were being... We were, as, as gamers of that era, were being shown things that we didn't think were possible in a video game, in a way. Treating stories even if now in retrospect they seem very one note yeah. very one trick um it was uh, wow games can do this games can be like movies or film or tv or they yeah. can be adult or mature exactly um so yeah they triple a used to be the only way that we would get experiences like that and now when we're seeing independent games just pushing and prodding at the limits and the edges of what's expected in in video games I think, and I ask out loud, why do I put up with the shit in AAA games it's, of Dragon Age, yeah. of Assassin's Creed, of even Far Cry, that is just trying to keep me buying it for $60, not trade it back if I bought a physical copy because they don't want that money lost to GameStop. So they add in all this extra content that's really not worthwhile in many cases. Why do I put up with that? Do you know? Like, what is it that keeps you <laughs> playing AAA games? Because it, does, it doesn't have to be one or the other, you know? You don't yeah. have to play one or the other, but what well, makes you play a Far Cry? So I'll, I'll answer that by kind of addressing what I think we've been dancing around, which is the really big thing here, which is that after Bioshock and about the time Break came out, mm -hmm. it became apparent that, like we said, these smaller creators, even these solo creators, could tap into those same things that felt so brilliant in Bioshock and Final Fantasy VII. Uh Beyond Good and Evil, yeah. Prince of Persia, Sands of Time, all these cool little yeah. things that happened that could happen that you didn't think could happen as a player if you were, like me, younger and not paying attention and not making <laughs> your own games. Yeah. And what kind of demonstrated was that like these nimble, smaller creators with a vision and a focus and a drive are, in many cases, way better suited to deliver those kinds of unique experiences that kind of like expand... Why? Because they... In many cases, I think it's it comes down to a combination of uh, talent and uh, resources and willingness to take on a big risk to pursue something they care about. Is freedom too generic of a catch-all? Are they freer to do those risky things? Probably. I mean, I know that, like, you know, it's probably a way different scenario if you run a company than to sure. work in a studio that's owned by a studio that's owned by Microsoft. Yeah. And you have, like, literally ten levels of people who can kill your project at any time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's why, you know, that's why you have people like, you know, part, like our own local developer, Fulbright, which mm -hmm. spun out of uh, 2K Marin developers who worked on Bioshock 2. Speaking of, yeah. Yeah, and went on to make Gone Home, which is a riskier game in a lot of ways. It was also riskily priced for an indie game at $20, mm -hmm. but it was a huge success. It won lots of awards, it got lots of recognition, and it delivered a story that hadn't been told in games before. Yeah. Um, and that's, um, that I think is starting to resonate with the public and starting to show people that um, it's, it's a great time to be playing games for that reason. It's hard to keep up with all the cool things happening, but like we're seeing an explosion of experimental ideas being delivered to market as purchasable or at least playable products. So with all that being said, let's come back to AAA. Yeah. It's no longer the place that you expect to see all this innovation come out of. It's no longer the place that has these big, huge moments for us in many ways. Uh, it's a big part of why for people like us who follow like press events like E3, uh, a little bit of the spark has been missing for a while. Yeah, absolutely. 
And uh, I guess the game I would ask you about then is uh, let's look at like The Last of Us. Uh-huh. Came out in 2013, <clears throat> a summer game, one of the last PS3 games, kind of the swan song for the PS3. Mm-hmm. Um, it was regarded by many people to be a very just remarkable game. Top of that generation in many ways. Yep. And in terms of like, I think the acting is stellar, the way that the characters are captured and performance and voice and um, the kind of the, the, the arc that their narrative follows, the way that the, ca- the game shifts you to controlling Ellie, mm-hmm. uh, the girl who you're escorting for most of the game, and like using her to keep Joel alive is a really cool device. And then the whole like ending sequence of deciding, like not really having a decision even, yeah. which felt revolutionary really in a way, like not having that choice to the point where you thought there'd be a choice was a big deal. But there's also the part of like, this is a Naughty Dog third person shooter and Naughty Dog third person shooters like Uncharted look amazing and don't play super great. So <laughs> how are we supposed to interpret that game? Something that it would be considered the pinnacle of AAA, especially yeah. of a specific A time. huge game of, the war, game of the Year award winner. Yeah, and which we um, have praised in other projects. We've talked a lot about it, and it deserves it. But to answer that, what what do I feel about that? What does that say about AAA, in a way? Yeah, that was just an example. But yeah, AAA, broadly. Um, specific to The Last of Us, I... I love that game because of its narrative, but I think that's why it challenged me to enjoy it as a game, because I could have easily watched that as a short film, yeah. I could have read that as a graphic novel, Oh yeah. and I could have still liked Joel and Ellie's story, and not have to put up with the stupid enemies that can be really annoying, especially on higher difficulties, you know, people that really do like playing on the highest difficulty and the challenge of that. That's fine. That's not for me. I still am primarily a single-player, narrative-focused uh, game player. That's what I play games for. It's a story that I feel I can get absorbed in. And Last of Us did that perfectly. Yep. So, <clears throat> as far as an example of AAA, something that would be the height of it, it, it checked all the boxes. It had multiplayer, which yep. is an important thing for developers and publishers now. It was pretty fun, actually. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't bad multiplayer, and it built off of what Uncharted had tried to do in the last couple games for their multiplayer. Uh, yep. It was, as you said, a Naughty Dog third-person uh, adventure action-y type of game, in yeah. a way, where you have exploration, you collect items, you shoot, there's cover shooting. There's cover shooting, which Gears of War kind of started the whole generation trend of, generational trend. So it did all these things that you would expect. It looked great. Awesome. But... I, as I said, I have a hard time with it because the gameplay itself, to me, wasn't congruent with what the story was doing. It worked, and it was a way to push the narrative forward, which is what most narrative-based games are, right? That there's a reason, there's a mechanic there. Yeah. Uh, except now we're seeing more independent games again, there we go, that are trying to do more with just narrative. Uh, Firewatch, yeah. if any of you haven't heard of that, go watch. There's a 17-minute gameplay video. It's essentially toying with, it looks like, the idea of just all narrative-based environmental exploration, but there's no combat, there's no enemies. So that's kind of where I see my interest going. But uh, Last of Us was fine, honestly. It was great, even. But why I play AAA games now, on a broader point, and what I'm interested in, is truthfully, it's like comfort food. It's a sure bet. It's almost like those people that would just play Call of Duty or Madden. And no, you know, honestly, I'm not trying to throw shade on them. Uh, you can make fun of them and, and some of the, the, the core gamers, as they would call it, the people that troll on message boards would. They would say they aren't real gamers, just like they would throw crap at women for not being real gamers or people that are LGBT for not being gamers, not to bring up those issues. But the core gamers that have truthfully hijack the narrative of what games can be and still influence that be it gamergate be it uh dlc controversies be it this entitlement factor they want the sameness they want the comfort they want games that have been doing what they've been doing for 20 30 years and you know what i don't not understand it i understand where they're coming from if i play a game like far cry or assassin's creed unity uh 
both Ubisoft games, so maybe not the best examples because that might be too unfair to Ubisoft. But I well, know whatever, they had a shitty year. They had a really terrible. They got to own that. <laughs> yeah, they really did. Uh, lots of controversies. Um, yeah, but yeah, I I know I'm not going to be. My expectations are low. I'm going to play them because I know it will be fun. It's a pretty sure bet. I know what I'm getting out of an Assassin's Creed game. So more of that for me is the taste that I have that I get it. I'm not worrying about Assassin's Creed to change the way I think about games and to be this amazing experience other than I like the gameplay. It's fine. It's whatever. Yeah, I'll sure. get it when it's on sale. That, but that is my problem, and I hate myself for that because I know what I'm doing, and I just eat it like comfort yeah, food. Yeah, it's this combination of you know what it is, you're not excited about it, but you're looking forward to just like sinking time into it because it's yeah. a, it's like it's like putting on a glove. Yeah, um, it's less about the art in that sense to to use a loaded word, and more about just the entertainment. Honestly, is it entertainment though? I mean, I guess it, like it is in the way that Law and Order is entertainment, right? It's a procedural almost. Yeah, it's a serialized. You're again, yeah, you're going into it knowing what you're going to get. But you're not holding that against the experience. Yeah. It's and like binge watching Deep Space Nine. It's not the best. <laughs> no. It's not going to really blow your mind until like it's later no seasons. It's no next generation. No, it's no TNG. But it's a known quantity. And you're going to be able to watch a lot of it and feel pretty decent about everything. Yeah. And But here's the problem, I think, is okay. that... Tell me what my problem is, Nick. Oh, well, <laughs> buddy. Uh, look at it this way. Uh, Ocarina of Time comes out. You don't know how it's going to be. It's the first 3D Zelda. Mm -hmm. Do you hesitate to buy it for 60 bucks? Let's assume you had $60 at that age. No. 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 Not, not a second. Not a second. Prince of Persia, Sands of Time comes out. $60. Do you hesitate? A little bit, because I've never played a Prince of Persia in that example. Okay, well, let's pretend that you like had better experiences before that, and you would play Prince of Persia. Done. I'll, I'll play okay. it. I got a new PlayStation 2. What else am I going to play? Yeah. Psychonauts. You know, like, all these games... I think that what's happening is like we're seeing, you know, because of disruption with like indies as this whole like new both pricing and also like game kind of set up, set up consumer expectations model. Um, we're kind of, I think that the way we look at the value proposition of games is changing faster than we can keep up with. Like whether it's the fact that Minecraft went from $10 to like $30 and is now yeah. on everything or... Just all these different examples of phone games racing to zero and this whole rise of free-to-play to try and trick people into playing and eventually paying money. And, like, we're seeing all kinds of weird, weird, weird things happen with pricing. And mm -hmm. that affects, going back to AAA, how we look at AAA games. Because we're in kind of, like, a weird situation as people who not only like games, but we care about the, like, there being a good environment where businesses want to take risks and make better and better games and try yeah. new things. And... It's so easy for me to look at Assassin's Creed Unity, see that it got like a 75 on Metacritic, say, oh, okay, this is a shitty game, it's busted, yeah. I can wait till it's $15 and or like free on PS Plus or something like that a year from now, mm -hmm. and then play it. Um, and that's weird. Like, it used to be that like AAA games were the things you looked forward to, and they shipped working, and like... They weren't disc... They weren't discounted, I guess, in a way. I mean, you'd see some used games on sale, but it felt like... You would some maybe this is just uh, my memory playing tricks, but I felt as if you would wait years for a sequel in, in many ways, or or a price drop even. Yeah, uh, it's four five years between games or something like a Super Metroid to Metroid Prime. The time between that for major. Oh my Metroid god, games. it was that long. Yeah, that I mean that, and that used to be in that those years. print magazines that we used to read. That used to be a talking point of. Mm -hmm. Wow, it's been seven years since the last Metroid game. What do we think is going to happen? And that used to be something pretty phenomenal in a way, but we didn't really care. We would just play whatever in the interim. But now it's almost that there's a demand of... Annualization. Well, yes, annualization. Sure oh, Assassin's God. Creed became an annual franchise. Call of Duty became an annual franchise with two and now three studios rotating responsibilities. So to that franchise... And that, the idea of the franchise and annualization, that kind of gets me to a point about a comparison with uh, book publishing, which some mm. of you might find, okay, so where do you think, where, where is Aaron going with this? What are books? <laughs> do, yeah, I don't They sound like magazines. Anymore. Is that something on my Kindle or what's going on? It's, it's an app for, for yeah. my Apple Watch. Books are apps, essentially, now. Okay. 
Um, but to, to for me to cut slack, and as I said way earlier, I would be kind of a devil's advocate. Um, so if I consider AAA games that I know are sure bets in a way, uh, comfort food for me, stuff that I don't mind paying for at perhaps a reduced price, as you said, Assassin's Creed Unity goes on sale if I didn't already have it for 20 bucks. Oh, okay, yeah, that's I'll pick that up. Mm-hmm. But currently I'm in grad school and I'm uh, finishing that up. And part of one of the, the requisite classes for my uh, technical writing degree was to take a class in book publishing. Um, you know, not something I'm planning on going into, but it's been pretty eye-opening. Um, yeah. and, and here's where I see that comparison and here's where I kind of let AAA games off the hook. Big book publishing companies essentially know that 80% of the books that they put out are going to break even or lose money. It's even more than that, 90% a lot of the times. We've mm-hmm. had we, we've done a lot of reading on this. We've had guest uh, agents, editors, people from within the, within the industry locally in Portland who have given us this insight. And they their hope is... The 10%, the 20%, whatever small fraction are going to be the Harry Potters, the Fifty Shades of Grey, the Mockingbird or Mockingjay series that will just break out and basically fund all of the other projects that have not made money or broken even for the whole year. Yeah. That's, that's why you have like Janet Ivanovich or like John Grisham or. Yeah. Um, yeah, all these these names that you see in every grocery store. The top ten seller list, the people on those racks uh, in the grocery store, on the top ten sellers, it's John Grisham, Danielle Steele, Stephen King, um, uh, all the people that you would expect to see. They are surefire bets. They yeah. are the, the mass market. Readers love them. Tom Clancy, whoever else, th- those examples... Publishers know that. They'll give those people the advances, uh, which they don't really do anymore, and that's not something you really see in the games industry as far as development. But point of that being is book publishers have been doing this for a very long time. They know what sells, and what doesn't sell is basically the whole problem with the industry. There's really no magic formula that will get a book to sell well. They know that they have a Stephen King that will sell whatever 100,000 copies in the first week. Great. We'll keep putting those out. Yep. Doesn't mean that it's art. Doesn't mean that it's perfect. Doesn't mean that it's great. If you love Stephen King, I'm sorry. I do like Stephen King books, but they know that that will sell. Yeah. So what is the the problem? And this is why I don't really throw a lot of crap at AAA game development is these companies have to make money. It's a very obvious reality. They put out an Assassin's Creed every year. So what? We don't have to play it. And if you are the person like me who's interested in that gameplay or it's just a uh, a weekend thing you do to let off some steam, great. But I, I'm also not happy with that in the sense of just enabling it in a way. And maybe I'm, I'm trying to give myself too much credit for how I influence the industry as a consumer. No. But yeah, like, why is it not similar that these that these game developers and publishers want to make surefire bets... Uh, homogenize their games so they are similar and appealing to those people who only buy a few games a year. They have the same features or functions that are found in multiple other games. That means it will sell well. That means they'll put out more of the same to make more money. That's a surefire bet. The rest are risks. And then maybe you have a breakout hit of a game that you really didn't think was going to sell that well, but hey, it got great reviews and the players really resonated with it. Oh my god, this is now going to be a franchise. We had no idea but then you still got the Assassin's Creed and Far Cries just chugging along in the background. So yeah. that's the corollary. That's where, if the book industry does it, different mediums, different setups, but why can't games do that? I guess it comes down to the money, probably. Yeah. Um, I can't think of many books that cost like $30 million to make a market. Yeah, unless it's a huge advance. I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey probably costs like $8 to make. Yeah. Yeah. About 8 bucks. Eight eight fifty maybe. So... I think that's the problem that these companies run into is like also um, when it comes to marketing and positioning games in the traditional like AAA and also like brick and mortar markets, there there really is like a, a cadence to it where you want to be the game that people pick up at the holiday season with their new consoles, mm-hmm. which is why you get this November rush and it bleeds into October usually. But And I'm sure that the brick and mortar stores still have an influence on that as far as how the marketing works or what's on the box. 
Yeah. I mean, that's how it works in book publishing is Barnes & Noble can basically make or break a book by whether or not they want to put it on the store shelves if the cover works. Yeah. Or does GameStop decide to offer a cool promotion for pre-orders or like, yeah. you know, all these things that play into it. And um, I think that we're seeing a couple things that make it only worse, which is that as budgets go up and um, teams expand and companies have to shrink the number of products, um, we see this issue where um, they uh, start to homogenize a lot of things, whether it's like multiplayer always gets outsourced to this other team and this other company. Like Raven is a good example of a company that has had outsourced multiplayer in the past. Uh, Ubisoft has dedicated studios like in Shanghai, I think, to make multiplayer modes for like Assassin's Creed and Splinter Cell and stuff like that. Um, we also see a lot of homogenization of engines where, like, um, God, is it Dragon Age is running on Frostbite now? Which yeah, is like, EA's now primary engine that DICE created. Yep, the Frostbite engine made by DICE. Uh, so we're starting to see, like, just, you know, and that, that's not a bad thing necessarily. Is this, to, to ask off of that, is yeah. this healthy? Is this the, 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 the maturing of an industry? Maybe. I mean, I hate to draw the obvious comparison to movies, but let's look at how movies are made. Like, uh, you obviously have, like, the main production, you have the cast, you have the main crew, the director, you have the producers and people who handle, like, the, the marketing, the fundraising, and, the, like, the actual release of the movie. But then, like, if it's, especially if it's, like, an action or blockbuster movie, there are, like, tons of other companies that contribute all kinds of post-production effects, CG um stunts yeah mocap all these things that go into making these movies and like we're starting to see that become a bigger and bigger part of triple a games as these things like natural human performance capture and richly detailed worlds and like realistic as fuck trees thanks to speed tree (laughs) which just won the academy award-winning middleware technology speed crazy by the way uh so i don't know getting back to your question is it a bad thing i don't know i just hope that like we're um we don't see things get back too far into a corner where there's no like there's no room for an auteur there's no room for like a director's vision to dictate the shape of a game or that becomes the realm of the indie and then maybe the indies become the independent films where the cool stuff bleeds over and gets talked about maybe it's who knows if the parallels hold up even in the short term but i think maybe that's I, I see the the homogenization tough word uh, of game development as you've brought up being just the inevitability of the whole industry. It's still young, really, when you think about it from a consumer perspective. Since the nineteen eighties, the seventies, sure, and then the crash, but the modern games industry, the last thirty years, that's not a lot of time, and a lot of the growing pains we're seeing even it being a distinct and unique product and uh, user base, I think we're just seeing it grow up and become, sadly, more homogenized and more safe and more reserved in what it puts out. But, hey, we have this amazingly huge indie scene taking those risks where the others can't, where the the big companies can't be nimble. Mm -hmm. So maybe to, to kind of tie this all back into one of the first questions we brought up when we were starting this to see how that that leads us perhaps to a conclusion where do you nick feel triple a is going as much as you can peer into your crystal ball but from your perspective of having been involved with game development seen that side of the industry where is it going for triple a i think that 2014 was for a lot of companies a kind of rude awakening uh, just because we have this new hardware that's more powerful with the Xbox One and PS4 and that getting into more consumer's hands, and to be fair, there was more consumer demand for that than some anticipated. Um, the cost of creating games for these new har- this new hardware is probably a lot higher than anyone anticipated, just like a lot of companies had trouble making the jump to HD mm-hmm. with the budgets they were used to. So I think that we're in for some very big changes over time, uh, where... Um, it's going to be tough for console-focused AAA developers to really try and um, retain that luster, that kind of like, you know, bravado that they're so used to, like entertaining is like the where the biggest things happen and all that stuff. And it's going to be very hard to capture consumers' minds and, uh, you know, get their confidence with their wallets that they had before. Especially when games like 
Destiny, which was mm-hmm. Bungie's, you know, huge thing they worked on forever. They left Halo behind their baby to go make this. And it was critically panned in a lot of cases. Some critics loved it. People sure. still love playing it, but it wasn't what people thought. Watch Dogs, which was supposed to be like yeah. the, the, the harbinger of this new era, this new direction in depth and realism and um, interactivity in open world Challenging, games. yeah, open world expectations. Yeah, kind of sucked. Mm-hmm. kind of completely sucked wasn't a pleasant experience in a lot of ways uh i think that that's going to cause a lot of companies to think very hard about what they can do with their resources and what makes sense um my hunch is that we're going to see a couple things one is uh companies doubling down their sure bets uh i think if call of duty's uh advanced warfare's lifetime sales are as strong as black ops or black ops 2 they'll probably feel pretty good about uh the new developer sledgehammer and keep you know delivering what i think is a pretty great game I think Call of Duty has managed to stay interesting, especially recently, much more so than many franchises. Um, I think we'll also probably start seeing more studios just start to um, maybe, you know, invest more people in smaller pet projects that could grow to be bigger things. I think that's, I think that's a pretty good prediction. Uh, I I would agree almost with everything you said, especially uh, the last point of smaller in-house projects that could have potential. Ubisoft is actually a great example on both points. They had a lot of problems with Watch Dogs Unity uh, last year, but they also had a small in-house game called Grow Home, which may may not be changing how we play and see games, but... From all intense, uh, from all accounts, and from everything I've looked at and watched about it, it seems like a pleasant, completely unexpected game from a giant publisher like them. Yeah. Even something that Ubisoft did last year, a Valiant Hearts or Child of Light, which you know you can, great, not great, however you feel about those, surprising experiments from a mega publisher. Yeah, they had they had strong, like identities. They communicated what they were about really well to, the, to an audience, and they felt like they were trying to do something different. And maybe that's where we're at. Maybe we are seeing publishers grapple with the awkwardness of trying to fit into a market demand that is now surpassing them. That the the cost, as you've rightly pointed out, of development are so high. Well, what do we do? We we go with what's safe. We don't mm-hmm. really risk it as much. We add some new systems here and there. We try new things, see if it sticks. If not, we got a, a chance next year to, to tune it up. But hey, let's also devote some resources to these small creative ideas that, hey, who knows? Maybe they'll blow up. Maybe they'll be big. Maybe they'll be a nice little side uh, revenue generation. Yeah, that's. I think that's also where I see AAA going, and I and maybe that will also now with this weird awkward growth period uh, where we're at with the current generation. We'll see those established franchises, as you pointed out, like Call of Duty, taking risks, actually, a little bit, of changing some of the core gameplay, refreshing it here and there, because they know, as much as it's a sure bet, at some point they're going to lose their audience. If they keep putting out the same game every year, these developers are not dumb. They know that they are going to have diminishing returns over time. So, hey, maybe all the risks aren't going to be just for the indie games. Maybe over time, because of the just the, the, the maturity of annualized franchises, they're going to have to innovate in a way. Yeah, so I, I most think, likely. I think it's kind of an interesting place where we're at. AAA games, I know I'll keep playing because they still are in the large majority of franchises I care about. I'm going to pick up the next Zelda. I'm going to pick up another Assassin's Creed because I enjoy playing it, but I'm also paying a lot more attention to indie games now. Good. That makes me happy as someone who makes indie games. <laughs> as an indie game developer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, cool. Okay. Well, I think we have covered a lot yeah. in our first episode. Um, Nick, is there anything else you would like to close out with before before I, I wrap up this inaugural podcast? I think we talked long enough. Okay. I feel pretty good about where we left things. And uh, yeah, I think 2015 is going to be a very interesting year to watch, especially in the big budget space, just to see how companies try to position themselves to stay relevant. Excellent. Well, everybody, thank you for listening for this, this first podcast. Again, as we said, we're going to be trying out some new things, trying our, our dynamic duo format 
getting better at this. So we really appreciate any lessons that you're giving to us, any uh, word you pass along to your friends. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, once this is gone live, right now as we're recording this, we're still in the planning stages. But once this goes live, we'll have everything set up for liking, sharing, etc. But mm -hmm. in the meantime, Nick, where can people find you online? Good question. Uh, I am on Twitter uh, at Nick Cummings. Uh, I use it occasionally. Feel free to drop me a line there. If you want to play a game or just like add me on a gaming network, uh, I am Ymog, W-H-Y-M-O-G, on uh, just about everything under the sun. Uh, and I'm currently looking for people to play co-op Far Cry 4 with on PS4, so let me know. You know, it's a shame I bought it on the Xbox because yeah. co-op's fun. Yeah, co I've heard. Fun. Uh, I am Aaron Thayer, and you can find me on Twitter, at Aaron Thayer. Uh, my personal website that I do, just basically some articles, things I'm writing in school, a uh, kind of logic dump, is aaronthayer.wordpress.com. And then as far as gaming platforms, I'm usually Athay, A-T-H-A-Y, or A-T-H-A-Y, because for some reason that a straight, just no hyphen, Athay is taken on PlayStation Network. I don't know why. We'll find that person. We'll, we'll figure it out. So you can find me there. Uh, again, we'll have all our other information posted up on the website as this goes run and gets running. Uh, we are the Ludinus. This has been the Ludinus Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.